Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Morning, friends. This morning, if I were to ask you to write one paragraph to describe what you think Jesus is like, I'm curious what you would say. What notions do you have in your mind, and how would you express that? Because we all do have notions of what Jesus is like. I mean, probably for many of us, I hope they come from the Bible, but I think probably for all of us, maybe there might be some notions of who Jesus is that aren't necessarily quite so biblical. Maybe you think of Jesus as this hippie-looking dude who is fine for Sunday school kids, but really is irrelevant for your life. Maybe you think of Jesus as one who's watching over you like a hawk. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Maybe you think of Jesus as someone you kind of respect, but not really kind of aloof and not really part of your experience, maybe just an idea. Maybe you think of Jesus as just like you, Jesus the Republican with all your same values, or Jesus the Democrat with all your same values, either one. Jesus of the Christmas cards. Well, this week I was thinking about this because even though it's not a Christmas movie, um, the great comedian Will Ferrell, who did give us Elf and Spirited, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, in 2006 gifted us with a pretty crazy movie called Talladega Nights. Now, let me just say right at the beginning, don't email me. It's a PG-13 movie. There's plenty of crazy, crude stuff in there, so I'm not officially recommending it. Um, and three weeks ago, I started with a, an illustration from the Vatican and great art. I thought, my health, my health, the illustrations have fallen. Now I'm, I'm down to Talladega Nights, but that's okay, because it's not a Christmas movie, like I said, but it, I think it actually has something... Um, very insightful to pull out of it. So what, what happens in Talladega Nights is it's about a, it's a NASCAR kind of comedy movie, and you have this character, Ricky Bobby, who's played by Will Ferrell, and he's a good old boy from North Carolina, and he is super immature and kind of out of control, but is a really good race car driver, and so he does really well. And basically the story is he loses everything and then has to kind of fight his way back and learn some lessons along the way. It's basically an adult version of Pixar's Cars. It's basically the exact same movie uh, with adults in it. But it's funny overall, but there's one particular scene that I've never forgotten. And as soon as I say it, for those of you who've seen it, you're going to remember this scene as well. That is funny, but it actually also holds something very profound in it. So you have Ricky, who is with his family and his mansion gathered around uh, with Cal, his racing partner, and his wife and children and everything. And they're good Bible Belt people. And so before they dig into this meal of fast food, Will Ferrell or Ricky leads in this prayer, this extended prayer of grace to baby Jesus. And as the camera pans over the spread of, of all this fast food, he prays and thanks baby Jesus for Domino's and for KFC and for Taco Bell, 
for his son's walker and Texas Ranger, for his red-hot smoking wife, he says in the prayer, uh, for his father-in-law and his smelly leg. And it goes on and on for a while. And finally, his wife interrupts him and says, you know, it's kind of weird that we're praying to a baby here. Can't, can't you get on? And Will Ferrell in his classic kind of deadpan humor response says, when, you're, when I'm saying grace, you can pray to whoever Jesus you want, but I like to pray to the Christmas Jesus because of his golden fleece diapers and he's so cuddly and omnipotent at the same time. I mean, it's, just, it's like it's just a classic line. So then his friend Cal, who's another good old boy, jumps in and says, when I think about Jesus, I like to think about Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it kind of is like, I'm kind of formal, but I'm also here to party. And I like... I like my Jesus to party because I like to party, he says. Then he goes on to say, I like to think of Jesus as like having these huge wings and he's on stage lead singing for Leonard Skinner with this angel band. And then one of his sons jumps in and says, I like to think about Jesus like a ninja who's fighting off evil samurai. And it goes on and on. And the whole point of it is, it's absurd. And this is kind of at the, at the root of much of humor. It's, it's the sense of absurd. It's the juxtaposition of something you don't expect. You've got these... This family that is, their whole life is about making money and promiscuity and fame and, and just, you know, self-centered, being a fighter, being a winner. And yet they're praying to this baby Jesus. The, the juxtaposition is, is, creates a lot of humor. But there's also something very profound here. Because if you pay attention to it a little bit more closely, you see that each of them has a vision of who Jesus is that deeply expresses their own greatest needs and desires and longings. Whether it's cuddly baby Jesus or Jesus who gives them winnings and, and money, classic rock vocalist Jesus, ninja Jesus. And, and that line from, from his friend Cal is really important. I like my Jesus to party because I like to party. That's actually a very insightful statement that I think is probably more true of us than we realize. We're just the same. Because unless we have like a totally negative view of Jesus, the reality is that our notion of him, which is hopefully largely biblical, but our notion of him really focuses on what we understand and what we perceive to be our, our needs and our desires and our longings. I was thinking about this this week because of the text we're going to look at, the story we're going to look at today, believe it or not, from Holy Scripture. Today we are celebrating this fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth week where we are looking forward in anticipation to the world-changing event of Jesus' incarnation, God becoming a man. And we've called this series this year Sketches of Salvation because we're looking at four Old Testament characters who really point us towards, they're like pencil sketches of the final image of, of God who the scriptures say that Jesus is both the perfect picture of who God is and what it means to be fully and truly human. And so today we're going to look at our fourth character and that is one of the most important and intriguing people from Israel's history, the great King David. And I'll just tell you at the beginning that what we're going to see in King David is indeed that he is an image of what we most long for, but he also, there's a, there's a major problem that's going to really say a lot about who we are and a lot about who Jesus is as well. So we started 
as I said, our Advent uh, series a few weeks ago when I spoke about Abraham, this very, very important man from the very beginning of Israel's history. And then the last two weeks, Pastor Kevin has talked about Rahab and then Ruth, and now David. David, this warrior prophet, this warrior priest, and, or this warrior poet, I should say, this writer of many psalms, brave, handsome, well-loved. He flourished around 1,000 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. And there are actually a lot of other characters we could look at in the Old Testament as well, but this, these four were not chosen at random. Because what you have in these four characters, you have Abraham, who is literally the beginning of the story after Genesis 1 to 11 and all the disaster of that. Abraham is the beginning of the story of Israel. He's the Gentile who responds in faith and becomes the father of, all, of many nations and also is the one through whom God promises to bless all the nations of the world. Then you skip forward to Rahab and Ruth, who are really important characters in the Bible. They're women that God uses greatly, showing us one, one of the things we see in a lot, a lot of places in Scripture is how God uses women to advance his story. And then also they are in the grandmotherly line of then our fourth character, David. So Abraham and David. Abraham, the very beginning of the story. David will see the height of Israel's history with Rahab and Ruth leading up to David, these two crucial women as well. And in fact, when you turn... To the, if you finish the Old Testament and you turn to the very first page of the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament, in what's called the Gospel of Matthew, we are introduced to the genealogy of Jesus. And how is he described? He's described as the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's the first verse of the, of the New Testament. And because those two crucial figures, the beginning of the story and the height of the story, are crucial to understand who Jesus is. So what I want to do today with you, and need you to grab a Bible, I want to do a super quick overview of David's life to see, and with a particular purpose, to ask how is this a sketch of what's going to happen with Jesus. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel. If you don't have one, there are several in front of you in the chairs in front of it. It's on page 213, or you can pull it up on your phone as well. But it's kind of nice to see it in print if you can grab a Bible of your own or one there in front of you, page 213. And very quickly, I want to run through a long man's life, uh, who, a long life of this man who is very, very important. And it starts in 1 Samuel. And if you were here last week or know anything about the story of Ruth, who was the great-grandmother of David, what happens, Ruth lives around 1160 to 1100 BC, somewhere in there, during the latter period of what's called the Judges, this time when things are really in chaos and out of control. And that's the setup to the story of the wonderful book of 1 Samuel, one of my favorite books in the whole Bible for sure. And what happens is in 1 Samuel, you see right from the beginning, if you're looking there, that there's this woman named Hannah who is begging God for a child, and she does have a child, and that child is Samuel, who is then dedicated to the Lord to be this prophet. And in fact, that story is pretty reminiscent to Zechariah and Elizabeth's story from John the Baptist, if you know that story from, from Luke. So what happens is that you have this other 
priest and prophet named Eli, and he and his sons really make a lot of mistakes. And the time in the first several chapters of 1 Samuel is really a disaster. The Philistines are beaten up on Israel, and finally, they even take the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Ark that God told them to build after they came out of the Exodus in the time of Moses. They steal it away, and so it's just a disaster for Israel. And so there's this longing for God to raise up a prophet. And so this is what happens with the prophet Samuel. And under Samuel's rulership and and priesthood, things start to go better. They get the ark back. It's a whole story. And they begin to win some victories and things feel a little bit more secure. But if you look ahead to 1 Samuel and skip ahead to chapter 8, you'll see something really crucial happens. It says that Samuel now had grown old. This time had been good. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Skip down to verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together because the sons are not doing well. They're taking bribes, etc. And they called, they came together at Ramah and they said to him, you're old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So you see, they want what, is natural. They want someone who is a good person to rule and reign and protect and provide over them. They want a king. That's a great idea, except for if you keep reading, it says in verse 6, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So you prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. So in other words, this is actually a really bad idea. Because the whole point of the people of Israel is that they were the unique people in the world who had God as their king, the truly good one who would provide for them and protect them and care for them. And they had God as a king. And now they're saying, we don't, we, that's fine, but we want an actual king. And so if you keep reading, Samuel says, if you want a king, it's going to mean taxation. It's going to mean taking your children as servants and for, for scripting them for war, et cetera. And they say, no, we want a king. And so God says, okay, fine, I will give you a king. And so what happens then, if you keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 9, all the way through chapter 15, we have a king of Israel. We have the first king of Israel, and his name is Saul. And it looks really good. He's handsome. He's a warrior. He's tall. Seems to do well. They begin to to win some victories, et cetera. But if you keep reading in 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 15, you'll see things begin to go south. He ends up being not fully trusting in God and not obeying God at various points, and, and it begins to be a disaster. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's really a sad, sad verse. The very last verse, 1535, it says, until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again though Samuel mourned for him and the Lord regretted or was, you know, had remorse that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a comment to, to have be at the end of King Saul's life that this was a mistake. So what happens then in 1 Samuel chapter 16, all the way to, to 31, chapter 31 at the end of the book, we meet David. David, this young man, the eighth son, he's kind of a forgotten son a little bit. He's a shepherd boy. God leads Samuel to anoint him as the king, as the future king. He actually receives this sort of sign of anointing. 
But the problem is Saul is still king. And so what happens in chapter 16 all the way through 31, you kind of have the story of like two overlapping kings, the, the king who's enthroned and the king who's been anointed. And you can imagine that doesn't go well. Sam, D- David is not doing anything wrong. He's an amazing warrior. He's a poet. He's beloved. You know the story from 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, the story where of faith, this young boy defeats this huge enemy of God's people. And, and he's popular, people are singing songs about him. And so Saul, who's losing it, is very upset. And so what you have in all these chapters, this very tragic story of David's ascendancy and Saul's descendancy and the conflict. And the result is David suffers a ton. He has to spend many, many years running around hiding in the wilderness and being lied about by Saul and others. It's a, it's a really difficult season for David that really shapes him in some significant ways. And this happens all the way through the end of 1 Samuel. And then if you turn over a page to 2 Samuel, you'll see finally Saul dies and David begins, he's enthroned and he begins to reign. So for the first six chapters, 2 Samuel, he's ruling, he's gathering new people together, he's forming up the borders, he's winning victories, he's popular, he's writing psalms, he's got greatest hits kind of album coming out. It's all, it's all amazing, people love him. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the really most important chapters in the Bible, God shows up through the prophet Nathan and says, I'm blessing you, David, and on from your line, there's always going to be a king who rules over Israel. God is pleased and blesses him in this way, the promise of everlasting descendants. Second Samuel, if you're following along still, chapters 8 to 10 continues to rise. Things are going great, and I wish... I wish it ended there. I wish 2 Samuel 11, 1 said this, then David retired, got old, enjoyed his grandchildren, and peacefully and wisely passed on his kingdom to his oldest son. But that's not what happens. If you keep reading in 2 Samuel, starting in verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11, all the way to the end of 2 Samuel into the next book, 1 Kings you'll see that it's just a huge mess. David, this great king, the greatest king, the one that God promised there would always be a descendant of his, commits adultery with Bathsheba, ends up killing her husband, and one thing leads to another, and it's like an epicenter of pain and sin and destruction. It just emanates out all the way through Israel's history. One of David's sons turns against him. There's a split kingdom. David has to flee to the wilderness again, and everything is just a burning mess. It is horrible. Destruction, loss, grief, death, all these things occur, and it just goes on through the rest of 2 Samuel. Then, finally, David dies, and his son Solomon comes to the throne, and it looks like it's going to be great. And if you look at 2 Kings, the first several chapters of that, chapter 2 to 10, it's amazing. Because in some ways, Solomon's even better than David. I mean, he's not the warrior as much, but he's this man of incredible wisdom. People love him, and God uses him to build the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the parts of which are still there in Jerusalem. This is all through Solomon, and he's so wise that people come to him from all over the world, from Ethiopian places, to hear his wisdom. So really, this combo is amazing. You've got David, this warrior and poet who writes all these psalms. Then you have Solomon, this leader and wise man who writes all these proverbs. It's amazing. However, 
Solomon ends up following in the footsteps of his father. Once you get to chapter 11, Solomon's own downfall begins. He ends up marrying a bunch of foreign wives. His faith fades and ends up being a disaster. And under his son, the entire kingdom of Israel is split out of arrogance and pride, and it never, it never gets restored. That's it. The, the whole rest, all the rest of these books of the Old Testament are the down, the fast and slow decline of the nation of Israel from the height of David and Solomon all the way down to destruction. Now, in literary terms, we make the distinction between a comedy and a tragedy. What's a comedy? Like Talladega Nights, it's where there's um, resolution and then there's something's good. There's dissolution. Things go bad, but then they resolve. They get fixed. That's what we call a comedy. It's a positive thing. A tragedy is when something is good and resolved and it gets dissolved. It goes to dissolution. And really, the whole Old Testament from David and Solomon all the way down, it's a tragedy. There are moments where things are looking okay, but it's really all dissolution. Here's a question you've probably never asked yourself. How do you think the people who were living during David's reign and Solomon's reign and had known all the goodness, how do you think they felt when all this happened? How would you feel? To be under an incredible king who you admire, does all these things, blessed by God, either of them, and then everything is lost. They make, it, make a wreck of their lives later in life. I think how you and I would feel, I think how they certainly felt was disillusioned, disappointed, sad, betrayed. They felt the fear. What does this mean for the future? They felt the loss. And you know, really, that's our life experience as well. I think many of you can probably think of a time, maybe now, when you looked up to someone who then made a wreck of their life later, it's really confusing. Maybe it was a pastor, maybe a parent, maybe a politician, maybe a business leader, an old friend. It's a, it's a very devastating feeling, and here's why. The reason the Israelites experienced this disillusionment and this grief is because they wanted and had tasted a good king. And we're just the same. They had seen and they longed for a good king king who rules well. And the reason we're just the same, friends, is because this is what it means to be a human. We are designed to be in relationship with someone bigger than us, someone greater than us, someone who can lead us and guide us and protect us, model for us the truth and goodness and beauty. Every human Every race and gender needs that. That's, that is who we are as humans because we're creatures made by God. And that means we're not creators, we are creatures. And that means to be a creature means that we are dependent. Even before the fall into sin, to be a creature is dependent. We're dependent on God's breath. We're dependent on God to sustain us, to provide for us, to, to give us meaning to protect us, to give us relationships with others. To be a human is to be dependent. It's to be in need. It's to be limited. And the way that God has designed us in the world is that it is often, usually through other people, people older and wiser and more skilled or whatever it is and gifted, 
to, to partially meet those needs of that need for what we have in relationship to God. So it starts with our parents. God could have just created all of humanity as full-blown adults every, you know, in every generation, but we are dependent creatures from the beginning. We're dependent on our parents, and eventually that dependence expands to include other family members and teachers and friends and mentors. And in most societies throughout history and today, the high point of that sort of relationship is a king or a queen. It's someone who is good and is in charge. And that's natural and good. I mean, think about Queen Elizabeth, who just died recently. What did she really do? Sorry, sorry if you're English, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not like day-to-day operations of government, but she was still so important to people because she really represented that very, that older ideal, that fundamental human ideal that we need someone that we can look up to and we need someone who lives a virtuous life and, and gives us a sense of sort of clarity and security. And so when leaders and kings and others stumble and fall and fail us, we feel it deeply. As Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you're a pastor is that, you know, as a leader and a spiritual leader, people put a lot of um, weight emotional way, whether they're aware of it or not, into their relationship with their pastor. And that's great and good and beautiful. It's natural. But it also means that when a pastor certainly fails, but even just disappoints you in some way, you really feel the weight of that. Because it's such a natural thing in us. And it's just a matter of time until I disappoint you. <laughs> so don't worry. If I, maybe I already have. Um, probably have. It's also kind of as a side note related to something I've observed over the years, and that is how, what happens when someone's father dies? I think the way God has made us that our relationship with our father is particularly powerful, whether they were a really good person who was deeply involved in your life or whether they were someone who was not good, maybe wronged you horribly, either way and everything in between, which is what most of us experience, when your father dies, I've observed this, that it's a particular kind of grief. And I think what's in that grief is that you feel for the first time in a significant way that there's really no one above you anymore in the way that we're fundamentally designed as, as God has made the world. And going back to David and Solomon, I mean, this is the sad and beautiful and tragic story of them because it shows us that what we most long for is a good king who rules well and guides us well. And yet we see in both David and Solomon that it's very flawed and broken and it really leaves us, the, the pottery of this hope is in pieces on the ground with shards in our hands and feet. And so the question asked then, so what is that story? How is that a sketch of salvation? What does that have to do with Advent and Christmas and Jesus, right? Well, I mentioned earlier that when you turn to the New Testament, it's really clear 
that it is this story from Abraham through David and then into what's called the exile when the kingdom basically is completely lost that is crucial to how Jesus is presented to us. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the king that people are waiting for. Abraham's the model of faith, of relating to God and faith and blessing the whole world. And David's the model of the great king, the one who God blesses and, and provides goodness and a good kingdom for the world. And what's interesting, if you've never considered this, those two great promises of the Old Testament, the promise to Abraham to bless the world and the promise to David to have a king that rules over the world, those are not in competition. Those are actually, from the New Testament's perspective, the same promise being met in the one person of Jesus. That's why Matthew 1.1 says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Both those promises are fulfilled. But if you don't quite see it yet, I had, had us print in the bulletin. You can look there. I'll just read it for you. Some of the words from Luke 1, the songs that Mary and Zechariah both sing. We could have pulled from either of them to see this. But listen to how this is brought together, the Abraham and David as it relates to Jesus. Listen to Luke 1, 68 to 75. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, speaking about Jesus' birth, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, this is the, these two great moments, these two great promises of, of the whole sketch of the Old Testament are met now in Jesus. So what that means is Jesus coming into the world that we are celebrating here at Christmas is not just a nice, nostalgic, yuletide, cozy tale that we can curl up to with hot chocolate. That's, you can do that as well. But it's the consummation of the entire story of God's redemptive work in the world, going all the way back some 4,000 years to Abraham. And so when we read the Gospels, and in January we'll get back to preaching through Luke, it's a good example of this, you see that Jesus is constantly teaching and preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. This is the promise, of the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and to David in him. So at Christmas, we should be thinking, whatever other notions we have about Jesus, we should be thinking probably primarily about him as a king, that a king has been born. That's what gospel means in the ancient world. It means good news because someone has been born that is going to rule over us and rescue us in a good way. But I don't want you to think just of that, as good as that theology and history is, I think there's something deeper and more personal going on here. Because David's life and Solomon's life, they really serve as a powerful example, really a, a microcosmic picture of our experience as humans. As I said a moment ago, we are designed for, we, we long for the good. We long for seeing good in a person and to be ruled in a good way, to be led and shepherded by someone good. We long for the real and lasting good. You may be aware of that in yourself. You may think, I don't want anybody, but 
The reality is there's no place where a human is happier than when they are in a secure environment with goodness and a vision and, and, and guidance. That's what we're designed for. But sooner or later, we will all be disappointed. Everything in life is never fully good, and even the best things, the best goods, never last. I think the story of David and of Solomon, they really do give us a, a little insight through the course of their lives into what all humans experience. We, we see the good, we taste it, we partake of it in part, and it's always mixed, and then it can never last. It never is sustainable. And I think Christmas time, it's all year, but Christmas time, the most wonderful time of the year, which in many ways it is, I think is particularly uh, an opportunity to see and to feel this, this kind of sadness of the fact that we can never find anything that's fully good and then we can never sustain anything good. I was thinking about growing up in the 70s and 80s, and some of you my age will remember that I don't know, it was probably mid, late 70s, early 80s, that the big fashion thing was IZOD. You remember that? Can I get a witness? You remember IZOD, right? I'm sure they're still around. Um, and I remember so desperately, my older sister Susan really wanted, I called her last night just to verify that I remember this correctly, because it's a really distinct memory from when I was a kid, um, that she really wanted this IZOD shirt, right? Which is pretty expensive, and we were pretty poor. And so my mom, who's super crafty, um, she couldn't afford to get my, you know where this is going, she, she couldn't afford to get my daughter, my, uh, my sister and eyes on search. So she, and she was a very good artist, is a very good artist. She sewed these little, these knitted these little alligators, <laughs> which is what the logo was. And you can imagine the Christmas morning moment. Instead of opening the Izod shirt, my sister opened this crafted little alligator, which I guess she's supposed to sew on or something. I mean, I just, the, whole, the whole point of fashion is that you're the cool kid, right? You've got the right thing. And so this was going to be worse than not wearing it. And I talked to my sister about it and she's like, yeah, I was able to laugh about it later after nine years of therapy. But, but, the, <laughs> but I just think of that as, a, as an example of what often happens. Or maybe you're not this cruel to your kids. I would never do this. But you give your kids like a, they open this box and it's like the iPhone 27X or something. It's like the ultimate and that's what they've longed for. Then they open the box and it's a Hardy's gift card for $2 with $2.63 left on it or something, right? Now, hopefully you didn't do that to your kids. That would be pretty mean. But uh, white elephant gift, maybe that'd be fine. But that experience of hoping for the good and it, never being quite what it is, I think really marks our lives. But even if you got the good, you got the iPod shirt, you got the iPhone you wanted, you can never sustain the good. Cracks, fades, diminishes. It's not just Christmas time. I was thinking about some examples of this recently. Back in May, I, for about 12 years, I taught in addition to things at this uh, local school that some of you know, CEC, and it was wonderful, had a wonderful time there for 12 years. And in May, 
I was at the graduation and the leaders surprised me and had me up on stage and gave me this plaque for kind of retiring from teaching there all those years. And it was so meaningful. I mean, it really was. And I, I, I loved, I just felt really honored and it was really meaningful to me to kind of put a, a you know, to close that chapter of my life. And was joking with the kids, you know, about it and stuff. And, and, and uh, we get home and I'm getting out of the car and I drop it. <laughs> and scratch the thing up. And it's not, it didn't break into pieces, but it's still on the mantle. And I think it's just like a nice little picture of, okay, <laughs> you know, let's, don't put your hope too much in, in, in anything, right, like that. But more devastatingly, um, my, many of you know my daughter up here, Mandy, and I've been very close forever, and she got married in October, and we, uh, she very, lovingly wanted to have like a first look with me where I got to see her before everything else. And she gave me these wonderful cufflinks that I love. And then uh, I got her this very nice um, anklet to wear. It was a really meaningful, sweet moment. And on their honeymoon, someone stole it from their room. And I asked her if she could, I could tell the story. And she said I could. And, you know, it's just... It sucks, you know? I mean, that's just, uh, excuse my French. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those pictures, actually at, at her wedding, the speech I gave, I quoted from Fiddler on the Roof, sunrise, sunset, um, that our years, season by season, laden with happiness and tears. And it's really just, it is that reality. You know, just the, the joy and the beauty and the loss all mixed together. You know, I'm sure you can think of examples from your own life as well. The reality is that everything good in life is mixed, and even the best things never ultimately last. It's true of possessions, it's true of accomplishments, it's true of relationships, it's true of leaders, it's true of societies. And even for God's own people, at the height of Israel's history, with God blessing them and using them, this brave, humble warrior poet David is not wholly good and cannot sustain the good. And friends, that is the sketch that is pointing us today to Christmas because here's the reality. The good king that you and I long for has been born. That's, he is the good king who is bringing into the world the kingdom, the reign of God, where justice and peace and shalom, that is exactly what the message of Christmas is. There are other things it's saying as well, but at the core of the Christmas message is that the good king has actually come. It's joy to the world because this is what we long for. It wouldn't be joy if it wasn't something we longed for. And so to bring this home, here we are on December 18th. We have this whole week of Christmas coming towards us. My wife and I were at the airport last night picking up one of our sons who came home from the Northeast. And it was so exciting to see so many people at the airport, you know, meeting with people, welcoming family and friends, lots of hugs. It was wonderful, of course. Uh, it's very exciting. And of course, we also know it's complicated with relationships and the stressors, but we gather on Sundays because we 
want to sing to God, which is good for us, honors him. We want to connect with other people. And we also want to hear from what God is saying in Holy Scripture. And a lot of times we speak from Scripture and we exhort you to something, which is good. Today, I just want to remind you of something. I want to invite you to consider this reality that, and if you're, if you're wanting to hear a message from God, if you came today saying, I need to hear a message from God, here's what it is. That the real and lasting good has really and lastingly come in King Jesus. You know it. You know that you desire the true good to be real and lasting. And you know that nothing does, if you're honest with yourself. The message of God at Christmas is that the really true and the lasting good has come in a person. And so as we head into this week full of too many sugar cookies and assorted chocolates and familiar songs and maybe some board games, Christmas movies, all wonderful things, also stresses, I'm sure, and conflicts and anxieties and hurts. I want to today just give you an invitation that this week, when you feel disillusioned and disappointed, the pang that you feel, maybe even in the midst of some goods, but that pang you feel that it's not fully good and it's not going to last, I want to invite you to Consider those experiences as a pointer, as a gift, as an invitation to remember what you're designed for and that Jesus as the good king is here. And to redirect your hopes to that never disappointing person. In other words, be aware this week of that dissatisfaction that's very normal. And when you encounter it, don't flee from it. Don't just try to escape it with one more cookie or one more drink or one more movie. But instead, lean into the reality that it is speaking about our souls that we are made for something more. That we long for a good that will not fade. As I said at the beginning, we all have these notions of Jesus that relate to some kind of needs we have. And again, many of those are good but if you've not thought of it this way, I just want to name the need that you have is that you need a good king who rules over you. That is what you need, whether you realize it or not. And this is exactly the real biblical Jesus. You see, ironically and paradoxically, if you, when everything goes well, it's easy to be blinded to that reality. It's like the Babylon Bee headline, Christian not sure why he should look forward to heaven when he already lives in America. <laughs> when we feel the loss and the pain and the disillusionment, those are not things to just flee from. Those are opportunities to pay attention to what we're made for. And let me just end by telling you just briefly how C.S. Lewis thought about this. C.S. Lewis is familiar to most of, us, most of us. He, really what drove all of his writings and what drove his life was summed up, he summed it up in a German word, Zainzucht, which means something more, it's kind of hard to translate exactly, but something like longing for something that you can see from afar and, and want. This deep sense of longing 
that drives all that we do. Maybe we catch a glimpse of it in a picture or in a moment, and it creates this kind of pain joy in us, this, this deep sense of like, I was made for something more and I long for that and I also don't have it. And that, that sense of Zane Zook, that's this, this constant drive in us to, to find the life that we're made for. Well, the way he describes it, he says, that we often describe this as beauty and beauty is a good word for this. And in his famous sermon, The Way to Glory, let me just end with this quote here. He, he says this about this desire for beauty. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them. The beauty came through these things, and what, we came, what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, our good images of what we really desire, but, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only a scent, the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we have never visited. That is our experience, friends, as humans. And here at Christmas is a wonderful opportunity to pay attention to that in us and turn to the King Jesus, the good King, who is what you're made for. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.